Our capital stock hasn't been destroyed. Our human capital stock is ready to get back to work. Our human capital stock? Human capital stock? Why not just call them cattle? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Jerk. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, up in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, As we go to air, uh, it is a grim day, the day after Memorial Day. And the death toll from the coronavirus has now ticked up above a staggering 100,000 deaths in the U.S. by most of the most widely used websites tracking such numbers. I suspect uh, the other Uh, Websites will also tick up above 100,000 momentarily if they haven't already by the time you hear me today. But in case you took advantage of the holiday weekend to do something else, which I hope you did, uh, to look away, to try and forget about our ongoing nightmares for just a few hours, and they are ongoing despite many attempting to pretend otherwise, Uh, Well, I hope you, you know, spent some nice time outdoors, perhaps, or otherwise thinking about something other than our current predicament and our current president, which I hope you did. Uh, Well, if you did that, don't worry. Desi and I are both back to ruin all of your blissful downtime today. Hi, Desi Doyen. Yes, party's over. Sorry. Yeah, apologies in advance. Uh, Though we do, if you listen closely enough today, we do have some good news, some very good news to report today. Eventually, but it's uh, it it is very good news, at least for now, uh, as it could have an enormous effect on our upcoming presidential election. I hear there is one. uh, Not that I'm tracking it, but in one hundred and sixty one days from today. 
Uh, you'll make it. We'll make it. We will all make it. So I, I hope you did look away. And and if you did, frankly, you did not miss much worth seeing. Even if even if I realize it's not easy to avert one's eyes at this point in American history. I know I certainly tried to. So in the hopes that you did something different and in hopes of getting you all caught up with everything you need to know, uh, here's enough of what you need to know about what you missed. Uh, this from a Washington Post news story. This is not an opinion piece. This is an actual news story that uh, may help validate your decision to look away. If you did, I know it validated mine. As the death toll in the coronavirus pandemic neared 100,000 Americans this Memorial Day weekend, President Trump derided and insulted perceived enemies and promoted a baseless conspiracy theory in between rounds of golf. In a flurry of tweets and retweets Saturday and Sunday, Trump mocked former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams' weight, ridiculed the looks of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and called former Democratic presidential rival Hillary Clinton a skank. Once again, this was the President of the United States on Memorial Day weekend as 100,000 Americans had died in just three months from a disease that he tried to ignore when it began and he is now continuing to ignore again in hopes that nobody will notice the ungodly death toll that has happened on his watch. All on a weekend of remembrance for those who have died in service of this nation. Back to the post here. He revived long-debunked speculation that a television host with whom Trump has uh, feuded may have killed a woman and asserted without evidence that mail-in voting routinely produces ballot stuffing. He made little mention of the sacrifice that Americans honor on Memorial Day or the grim toll of the virus. In fact, Trump's barrage of social media attacks stood in sharp contrast to a sober reality on a weekend for mourning military dead the number of Americans whose lives have been claimed by the novel coronavirus, which has now eclipsed the combined total of U.S. deaths from wars in Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Although Trump on Friday had called for worshipers to return to church in person this holiday weekend, the president did not do so. He played golf on Sunday morning. Again, that's not an opinion piece. That's the news piece in the Washington Post. The New York Times reported the weekend's news this way. Trump finally ordered flags lowered to half-staff at the White House only after being badgered to do so by his critics and otherwise took no public notice as the American death toll from the coronavirus pandemic approached a staggering 100,000 on Sunday. While the country neared six digits of death, the president, who repeatedly criticized his predecessor for golfing, during a crisis, spent the weekend on the links. When he was not zipping around on a cart, he was on a social media. He was on social media, embracing fringe conspiracy theories, amplifying messages from a racist and sexist Twitter account, and lobbying playground insults at perceived enemies, including his own former attorney general. This was a death toll that Mr. Trump once predicted would uh, never be reached. In late February, he said there were only 15 coronavirus cases in the U.S. and declared that the, quote, 15 within a couple of days is going to be down close to zero. In the annals of American presidency, 
It would be hard to recall a more catastrophically wrong prediction. Even after he later acknowledged that it would not be zero, he insisted the death toll would fall, quote, substantially below the 100,000 mark. Uh, I guess that depends on what your definition of below means, because it is clearly above 100,000, and it is climbing, and it is likely to get much worse. As it stands right now, the Times reports the coronavirus has infected 1.6 million Americans and taken so many lives that it is as if an entire mid-sized American city, say Boca Raton, Florida, just to pick an example, simply disappeared. At this pace, it will stand as the country's deadliest public health disaster since the great influenza of 1918 to 1920. Please take note, by the way, the 1918 uh, uh, Spanish flu, as they call it, uh, actually went from 1918 until 1920. No, it did not just disappear in a few months as the weather got warmer. All of this uh, at the same time that the nation now confronts the most severe economic collapse since the Great Depression. See, I told you we had nothing but fun today on the show. Well, it is what it is. You know? The historical comparisons are breathtaking. More Americans have died of the coronavirus in the last 12 weeks. 12 weeks than died in the Vietnam and Korean Wars combined. And nearly twice as many as died of battle wounds during World War I, just in these past three months. The death toll has nearly matched the number of people killed by the initial blasts of the world's first atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In terms of American deaths, it's the equivalent of 22 Iraq wars, 33 September 11 attacks, 41 Afghanistan wars, 42 Pearl Harbors, or 25,000, yes, 25,000 Benghazis. Thank you for noting that, Peter Baker at The Times. Mr. Trump, who has been sharply criticized for his slow and ineffective response to the pandemic, focused on Sunday on the more recent progress, looking ahead, not behind. He exulted on Twitter, quote, cases, numbers and deaths are going down all over the country. But even that was not true. While total new cases nationally have begun declining, hospitalizations outside the New York metropolitan area have increased in recent days, increased as Trump's own former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb pointed out on Twitter, citing that new hospitalizations nationwide have risen slightly over the last week after showing sustained declines for the two preceding weeks. You know, in the two or three weeks that the coronavirus incubates before symptoms begin to show after, say, reopening states for business around the country over the past two or three weeks. Altogether, cases are falling in 14 states and Washington, D.C., but they're holding steady in 28 states and in Guam while they are rising, rising in eight states plus Puerto Rico. The American Public Health Association said that the 100,000 milestone was a time to reinforce efforts to curb the virus, not to abandon them. 
The outbreak is far from over, they noted in a statement. New hotspots are showing up daily and rates remain steady in at least 25 states. Even the grim total of 100,000 dead Americans barely begins to scratch the surface of the pain and the suffering endured by a country under siege by the worst public health crisis combined with the worst economic crisis in decades. Dr. Tom Frieden, the esteemed former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said, quote, it's a milestone to reflect on the fact that even those who didn't die got sick. To reflect on the sacrifices people made to stay home, the sacrifices of the healthcare workers who shouldn't have had to sacrifice. Adding, most importantly, it should lead us to take this seriously. It's 100,000, but it looks like we're still at the beginning of this pandemic. See? Told you I was here to ruin everything for you. Let me repeat that. Dr. Tom Frieden, the legendary director of the CDC, says we are still at the beginning of this pandemic. And I'm I'm sorry, frankly, to have to mention it. But, you know, after I saw folks over the weekend pretending that the virus was over and that all is well, hanging out together, you know, jumping into that lake down in the Ozarks and boozing it up with their pals, hundreds of them jammed together without a care in the world in my old home state of Missouri. Well, someone has to mention this, I guess. I wish the parents and the grandparents of those kids in that lake, I hope, well, I hope they have not murdered them in the weeks ahead, to be honest. Back to Baker in the Times here. For the president, the emphasis now is on recovery, not tragedy, as he urges the country to reopen the shuttered economy and return to public life. While he will, uh, while he uh, traveled to Baltimore on Monday to mark Memorial Day and pay tribute to fallen troops, he was sending a different signal by golfing two days in a row, telling the nation that it was all right to leave home, head to the course, attend church, frolic on the beach, and get back to work. Among those who regularly assailed President Obama for golfing while president was one Mr. Donald Trump. By one count, he attacked Obama for doing that some 27 times. Quote, can you believe that with all of the problems and difficulties facing the U.S., President Obama spent the day playing golf, Trump wrote in 2014. At the time, he was criticizing Obama for golfing after just two cases of Ebola were confirmed in the U.S., He went on Fox and Friends at the time to say, when you're president, you sort of say, like, I'm going to I'm going to sort of give it up for a couple of years and I'm really going to focus on the job. Apparently, the suckers who watch Fox News believed him then and they've completely forgotten about that now, haven't they? If the country's losses were on his mind this weekend... Trump did a good job of hiding it. His Twitter feed was full of everything but that. He tweeted or he retweeted messages implying that, quote, Psycho Joe Scarborough, the MSNBC host, murdered an aide in 2001. He suggested that Speaker Nancy Pelosi had denture problems and likes to, quote, drink booze on the job. And declaring that former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, his former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, quote, had no courage and, quote, ran for the hills by recusing himself from the Russia investigation in 2017 as required by ethics rules. Oh, ethics rules. Remember those? So quaint. <laughs> 
Once again, this is the president of the United States. I think it bears repeating. While he indulged his political feuds, experts warned that the pandemic was hardly over. Another 1,000 Americans or more will most likely die by Monday, Baker wrote over the weekend, and another 1,000 the day after that, and another 1,000 the day after that. The esteemed Imperial College London, which has focused on science, technology, medicine, and business since 1845, predicted last week that the relaxation of quarantine measures in the U.S., as encouraged by Donald Trump, quote, will lead to resurgence of transmission. And that, quote, deaths over the next two-month period could exceed current cumulative deaths by greater than twofold. In other words, another 200,000 deaths. Another 200,000 deaths. On top of the 100,000 we've already had? By August. Uh, I hope that they are wrong. My God, do I hope that they are wrong. Imperial College of London, what do they know? Hopefully they are wrong. As the nation, nation uh, reaches this macabre 100,000 milestone, uh, that is the grim worry, that this is not the last one, the not, not the last 100,000. Dr. Frieden of the CDC said to me, the most important question is, are we going to do what we need to do to prevent the next 100,000? Apparently, at least if you listen to experts, as opposed to our buffoonish former reality TV star and failed businessman of a president, the answer seems to be no. We are not going to do what we need to do because, you know, business, the economy, and hey, re-election. I'll get to the re-election part in a bit, but as to the business part, well, that's all looking just fantastic right now. At least according to the White House uh, senior economic advisor, Kevin Hassett, he told CNN's State of the Union on Sunday that America's human capital stock. Yes, that's what he actually called American workers. That's you. Human you capital stock that they are ready to get back to work as the country reopens its economy. We don't have our capital stock hasn't been destroyed. Our human capital stock uh, is uh, ready to get back to work. And so that there are lots of reasons to believe that we can get going way faster than we have in previous crises. Yeah, there's plenty of reason to believe that. What with all that human stock we've got ready to go back to work. Walter Schaub, the uh, former head of the U.S. Office of Government Ethics. Hey, remember ethics? where he was appointed by George W. Bush and he continued serving under President Obama and then Donald Trump until he couldn't stand it anymore. He said on Twitter over the weekend, Trump's pandemic plan is titled To Serve Man. If you remember the uh, the old Twilight Zone it's episode. A, yeah. It's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. But Hassett said on, uh, on behalf of Donald Trump's White House that we can get going way faster than we have in previous crises thanks to all of that human capital stock that is good to go. Nonetheless, according to the American Prospects' David Dayan, who does not work for Donald Trump and who also has a way of cutting right to the chase and telling us what will happen before it happens and has not been wrong yet during this pandemic, as he writes his daily unsanitized uh, column over at the American Prospect, he has not been wrong, so please pay attention. Dayan reports today 
that the outlook is not quite as rosy as uh, Kevin Hassett is uh, painting it there, at least not now, as the White House is hoping to convince you to believe. At least uh, not very rosy, not without some very big action from Congress and some very quick action. But Congress, at least the U.S. Senate, appears to be in no rush at all, according to Dayan Today. He writes, we're back from a holiday weekend, but the Senate is still out of session, having left Washington without acting on more economic aid. The official line from Republicans is that it's time to see how previous efforts work before considering more. And anyway, the economy's opening back up. Maybe it won't need any federal support. This is dangerously wrong, he writes, especially because of the realities of the political calendar. Decisions will be made in the next few weeks that will put the nation on a direct path to depression without congressional intervention. He says that's because the fiscal year for many states begins on July 1. Budgets have to be adopted between now and then. California has a June 15 deadline for how to fill its giant budget hole, which could be as large as $54 billion. That's a lot of money for California, even if it's a drop in the bucket for the feds. Other states uh, scheduled to adopt a budget within this period include Colorado, Delaware, Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Vermont, and Wisconsin. Most states, unlike the federal government, are not able to deficit spend their way out of these problems. They must come up with a way to balance their annual budgets by law. And that means cutting services to everyone and, yes, laying off state workers. Nevada, for example, like many states, has a biennial budget process. They'll need a special session to cover shortfalls for this and the next fiscal years. The whole is about $1 billion for this year and more starting on July 1 for Nevada. Ohio has a similar-sized problem. Oregon expects a $3 billion dip in revenues for its two-year budget. New Jersey moved its budget deadline from July 1 to September 1, but has already planned on $1.3 billion in cuts as a down payment on dealing with revenue losses of some $10 billion. The budget just to get to September will likely include layoffs unless Republicans in the U.S. Senate get back to work and approve the funding for states and municipalities that the House has already approved. According to New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy on CNN this weekend, while Donald Trump was out playing golf, this is going to get very bad in the Garden State. This is not abstract. We don't need to do a data crunch. We don't do an analysis. We announced a budget on Friday for the next four months, and we had to cut or defer over $5 billion of expenditures. And this includes uh, potentially laying off educators, firefighters, police, EMS, healthcare workers. This is not abstract. This is real. It's not a blue state issue. It's an American issue. Uh, it's not a legacy. You guys didn't manage yourselves uh, in the past better. That has nothing to do with this. This is about keeping those front, those, those very frontline workers in their jobs, doing the heroic work they're doing at our hour of need in the biggest health care crisis in the history of our country, the biggest economic crisis in the history of our country. The last thing we need to do is to lay any of those folks off and increase the unemployment rate and underserve our residents. So we need it. And it's not just New Jersey. It's not just blue states. 
its American states up and down the country. So his reference there, uh, that was Governor Bill, uh, uh, Phil so, Murphy of New Jersey, uh, his reference there to not just blue states, basically is a response to uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said, well, we're not going to bail out blue states. We don't want to pass a blue state bailout when the Democrats in both the Senate and the House have been calling on Republicans to uh, fund states and localities around the country who are getting wiped out. As uh, Phil Murphy says, this is not just blue states. This is everywhere. David Dayan says the similar carnage is all across the country. North Carolina, not exactly a blue state. Uh, they expect a $4.2 billion shortfall. There are 3 to $4 billion in cuts needed in Georgia, also not exactly a blue state. It could be more than $10 billion in Florida. Exactly, not exactly a blue state. Indiana has asked for a 15% cut for most agencies for the next fiscal year, which also begins July 1 there. Texas has started with a proposed 5% cut. Pennsylvania is concerned that an extension to tax filing delays revenue from uh, 2019 filers until after the budget deadline makes forecasting impossible for the state. Those are not exactly blue states. As a matter of fact, those are all battleground states that Donald Trump really, really needs to and wants to win this year. And they are all of them in big trouble. And remember, each of these cuts, when we talk about cuts, they're going to have to cut their budget. That is not only to you know much needed services that people need, but it's also cuts to jobs. Jobs will be cut. Important frontline jobs in law enforcement, in fire, emergency workers, and yes, healthcare workers in the middle of a pandemic will be cut. Once July rolls around, barring any action from the federal government, many of the worst case scenarios will have to be rolled out and decisions have to be made before then. Nearly all state and local cuts translate into jobs losses, says Dan. Reductions in income, loss of services and financial aid to residents. And of course, he writes, this is just the state spending. Local cuts are already upon us with more to come. He says this could create a spiraling effect where less revenue means more cuts and reduced purchasing power leading to less revenue. This dynamic creates as much uh, as much as two two dollars in economic losses for every dollar that is cut. So you cut one dollar from your state budget. That means your state ends up losing two dollars instead. Either Congress comes in with funding or the cuts go through. Dane warns. The Wall Street Journal reports today that cuts from the Great Recession at the uh, state and local level, which were uh, neglected by Congress, they didn't do anything about it at the time. Well, those cuts led to drops in spending and employment that only now, only just got fully reversed last fall. Ten years later. Yeah. Cuts in state and local budgets that began in 2008 have only now actually more than um, more almost than 12 years, years yes. 12 years later, been restored. That's how long it takes. State and local government spending alone is 11% of GDP, gross domestic, domestic product. That's responsible for over 12% of the U.S. workforce. 
that uh, state and local government spending. 11% of GDP and 12% of the U.S. workforce. Please keep that in mind when your Fox-loving MAGA friends tells you how government is just too big, spends too much money. What are they spending it on? Well, they're spending it on GDP, and they're spending it on 12% of the U.S. workforce. Dayan notes that uh, these aren't far off cuts to this uh, sector, that these decisions will be made in the next month or so. Therefore, Congress does not have time to see what will happen. Let's see. Let's find out how the, the initial round of spending went. They do not have time to see what will happen with the, the economy. If they do not backstop state and local spending, we will have a depression, he says, period. That's him adding the word period. He says maybe it'll be a short depression or a protracted one where the lead weight of government spending cutbacks prevents recovery. But we will have one, and we have only a few weeks to avert it. Hey, welcome back from the holiday. Glad you could join us today. Told you we were here to uh, buzzkill your hopefully pleasant, otherwise uh, Memorial Day weekend. But I did promise some good news, some good news today. <laughs> okay. And I do have it uh, regarding this year's election. That news is next, and Ernie Canning will be joining us as well. Not that Ernie is bad news, <laughs> but uh, all of that is straight ahead. We'll see. We'll find out. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. It is a roller coaster, ain't it, though? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No more, more, more so has it been a roller coaster, frankly, than the great state of Florida. A federal judge has gutted a Florida state law requiring felons to pay all court fines and fees before they can register to vote, clearing the way for thousands of Floridians, perhaps hundreds of thousands, to register in time for the November presidential election. Yay! In finally. Florida. In Florida. Uh, yeah, it has been a roller coaster on this case, but I guess we're at the peak of the roller. The I don't know which part is the best part of the roller coaster, but this is one of the good parts. <laughs> Uh, because, boy, if things change in Florida, if you add a couple hundred thousand more uh, uh, voters to the rolls... 
Well, that entire state could flip from red to blue very quickly. Republican lawmakers and Governor Ron DeSantis pushed this measure after Florida Florida voters overwhelmingly approved a constitutional amendment in 2018 to expand voting rights to felons who have completed, quote, all terms of their sentence, including probation and parole. The measure... That uh, an original uh, constitutional measure passed by a huge margin tw- uh, in 2018 with approximately 65 percent of the vote. It had support from across the political spectrum at the time, including from the ACLU, the League of Women Voters, groups backed by the Koch Network and the Christian Coalition. They were all in favor of it. It passed by a huge margin in 2018 by 65% of the vote, and then immediately thereafter, Governor DeSantis, who barely won his election at all in that same year by less than half of a percent, if that much, he directed his fellow Republicans in the state legislature to pass a bill that would essentially gut that statewide ballot measure just approved by voters to let former felons register to vote in a state where they had previously been barred from voting for life, even after they had completed serving any and all sentences for their crimes. The GOP supporters of this law that uh, was passed to essentially gut Amendment 4, they claimed it was necessary to clarify that amendment Voting rights advocates accurately argued that Republicans were trying to limit the effects of what would have been the largest expansion of the state's electorate since poll taxes and literacy tests were outlawed during the civil rights era. So, of course, what did Florida do? They passed another unconstitutional poll tax on on strict party lines, of course. You can't just have your voter suppression tools go away all at once. You've got to try. You've got to use them. You've got tools in the toolbox. Yeah. So uh, essentially, it was a a poll tax, as the judge recently found uh, over the weekend, that uh, essentially allowed former felons. Yes, they could vote if they had enough money to pay various fines and fees, while those who were too poor, because, for example, they were in jail. Those people would not be allowed to register or to vote. The law, according to critics, had made it virtually impossible for most felons to register because uh, either because of an inability to pay, they didn't have the money, or because the state offered no way for them to even know what they actually owed or what they had already paid. There was no statewide database that even tracked those numbers. We had Ion Sancho, the great election official from Leon County, Florida, on. I think it was the day that they passed that law in um, uh, in Florida. And he said, there's no database. Nobody knows. He's, you know, used to run for 30 years, ran the election office there. And if somebody came in to vote, how would he know whether they were legally registering to vote or not? He had no database to turn to to find out if these people even owed money. And apparently neither did those people. And they have no tool, no way to find out how right. much. That's what's so insane about this law, that the Republican state lawmakers Oh, that's Florida, one of the many things oh, that right. are insane they, about I this law. I don't want to undercut how yeah, insane this law yeah. is, but the fact that they did not set up or fund in any way whatsoever any kind of method or system to be able to tell which felons have actually got fines and fees they have to pay or how much they have to pay or where any of this is. And I think that that was it's just... It's just a, all about preventing people from voting at all costs, particularly people who might 
might want to vote against Republicans. U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle agreed with those uh, critics of that law, likening the restrictive legislation to a tax and concluding that the state had not created a system that would allow felons to even identify their financial obligations. Judge Hinkle wrote the 24th Amendment precludes Florida from conditioning voting in federal elections on payment of these fees and costs. He was referring to the constitutional amendment that bans poll taxes. Hinkle did not find, however, that the law intentionally discriminated on the basis of race, as the plaintiffs had argued, because of the disproportionate number of African-Americans who were among the state's population of felons. Oh, that wasn't a, uh, a bug. That was a feature. In fact, a full one quarter, uh, one out of every four African-American men of voting age in Florida had been barred from voting under the state's notorious lifetime ban on voting rights for former felons. So, yeah. That's kind of who it was meant to target, but the judge let that one go, apparently. Advocates testified during an eight-day trial uh, earlier in spring that the law had imposed a chilling effect on efforts to register felons who had completed their sentences. Florida's voter registration application requires residents to attest that they have, quote, completed all terms, unquote, of their sentence. But without being able to determine... Whether they still owed fines or fees or restitution, many hesitated. They just didn't sign the application for fear that they could be charged with perjury if they did. Now, under the judge's orders, no one will face perjury uh, for signing that uh, registration form. Desmond Mead, a former felon himself, he's now the executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which fought long and hard to successfully get Florida's Amendment 4 on the ballot back in 2019 and to see it passed by a huge margin, he said that this court decision adds another remarkable chapter in our fight as returning citizens to participate in our democracy. He said, we will remain vigilant in our commitment to place people over politics and ensure that all returning citizens, no matter how they may vote, have an opportunity to possess what we believe to be the most endearing sign of citizenship, the right to vote. Julie Ebenstein. You remember Julie. She's oh, yeah. been on the show a couple of times. She's a senior staff attorney with the ACLU. She litigated the case. She said, quote, the court recognized that conditioning a person's right to vote on their ability to pay is unconstitutional. And the ruling means that hundreds of thousands of Floridians will now be able to rejoin the electorate and participate in upcoming elections. This, she said, is a tremendous victory for voting rights, and I concur. At least a victory for now. The nonprofit Florida Rights uh, Restoration Coalition, they estimated that when the ballot measure passed, that as many as one and a half million felons previously barred from voting would now be able to do so in the crucial battleground state. But those expectations shriveled in the intervening two years thanks to Senate Bill 7066 requirements that fines and fees and restitutions be paid. Advocates estimate that fewer than 50,000 felons instead have registered in that time. They hope Friday's ruling, however, will reverse that, although registration efforts nationwide continue to be hampered by the coronavirus shutdown, and they really are. Try to get to that on another day. Uh, nonetheless, Amendment 4 backers promised to redouble their efforts to register thousands of felons between now and November.
Helen Aguirre-Ferre, a spokesman, uh, spokesperson for DeSantis, said Sunday night that the government's office is reviewing the ruling. I would be stunned if they did not appeal it. Oh, of course. They can't just let it go. So, yeah, all of this uh, could be reversed again as the uh, roller coaster fight for democracy uh, in this country by advocates of democracy fighting for democracy as it swings against the Republicans who this year, but really every year, but especially this year, are fighting to prevent democracy any way that they can. Any way that they can. Meanwhile... As uh, Republicans are trying to make voting as difficult as possible, even during a deadly pandemic in California, the Republican National Committee and other GOP groups, including the California Republican Party and the right wing Judicial Watch and former California congressman turned candidate again, Daryl Issa. They sued California Governor, uh, Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom on Sunday, arguing that a move to expand mail-in voting during the pandemic is illegal and in violation of the U.S. Constitution. In a tweet announcing the suit, Republican National Committee Chair Rona Romney McDaniel called Newsom's executive order, quote, radical and, quote, a recipe for disaster that would create more opportunities for fraud. I think that uh, she'd be happy about that. The Republicans are always looking for new opportunities for fraud. Uh, in any event, uh, Gavin uh, Newsom's May 8 order requires election officials in each of the state's 58 counties to send mail-in ballots to all registered voters as he stated at the time of the order, quote, no Californian should be forced to risk their health in order to exercise their right to vote. The order to send a vote by mail ballot to every registered voter in the state is so radical, in fact, that five states already do exactly that. Some of them have been doing it for years, including Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Hawaii, and yes, the very Republican state of Utah where one Mitt Romney, the uncle of RNC chair Rona Romney McDaniel, somehow managed to become their U.S. senator anyway, along with another Republican U.S. senator. Yes, both of their senators are Republican, and they also have a Republican governor. But uh, never mind if that's uh, a radical idea or not. Is it lawful? And is it constitutional? The Republicans say that somehow it is not. Bradblog.com's legal analyst Ernie Canning joins us next, next to speak to that question. You won't want to miss that. Maybe he'll have good news for us. We don't know. You're listening to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back 
to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Thank you for sticking with us here, despite the roller coaster of news we've had to offer today. In a desperate attempt to prevent a high turnout of California voters for the critical 2020 general election, writes retired attorney and bradblog.com legal analyst Ernest A. Kenning today. Attorneys from the extreme right-wing organization Judicial Watch filed a federal complaint late last week on behalf of the Republican National Committee, the California Republican Party, former Republican congressman turned candidate once again, Daryl Issa, and several named Republican voters in the U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of California. The complaint alleges that California Governor Gavin Newsom and Secretary of State Alex Padilla, both Democrats, unlawfully usurped the power of the California State Legislature when, on May 8, they issued an emergency executive order in response to the COVID-19 crisis. The order directed the election officials of every California county to, quote, transmit vote-by-mail ballots for the November 3, 2020 general election to all registered voters no later than the last day on which vote-by-mail ballots may be transmitted. The complaint from the Republicans argues that the executive order violates the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, specifically the Elections Clause of the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 4. Really? How so? Considering that at least five other states, including Republican Utah, do exactly the same thing. Joining us now to explain, if he can, the Republicans' lawsuit is Ernie Canning, who for more years than I can count at this point has been a Bradblog.com legal analyst and contributor. Ernie Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How are you, Brad? Uh, you know you're not supposed to ask that sort of a question during this sort of a crisis. <laughs> I'm just saying because nothing good can come of it. Uh, hey, you're still breathing, so don't complain. There is that. You're right. Uh, I'll take it, given uh, where we are these days. So, Ernie, uh, so what part of the election clause of the U.S. Constitution is California violating with its governor issuing uh, using emergency powers to order that all voters shall receive a vote by mail ballot this year? How could that possibly be? Well, before you tell me how it could be in violation of the Constitution, what part of the Constitution are are the Republicans even quoting here? Article one, section four. Okay, what does it say? (laughs) Well, it says basically uh, it's the elections clause, Mm -hmm. and what it says is that uh, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senator and representative shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And the Mm -hmm. the basic argument is that the order that was uh, provided by the governor and secretary of state they're not the legislature, so the order's invalid. That's that's basically what their argument is uh, on that particular clause. So, in other words, the legislature itself would have to come to uh, come together, come into session, and pass a law to allow this before it would be constitutional, as the argument as the uh, uh, Republicans are arguing here. Well, that's their argument. It's totally at odds with existing Supreme Court case law that. Uh, basically says that a legislature may delegate the authority under the elections clause to other entities or officials. And um, I I actually thought of a hypothetical as Mm -hmm. to how ridiculous it is. In this case, uh, Governor Newsom is relying on the express provisions of 
Section 8571 of the California Emergency Services Act, mm -hmm. which uh, authorizes him to basically suspend any regulatory statute or statute prescribing the procedure for the conduct of state business. And, and conducting an election is obviously conducting state business. And the, the emergency in this case is the threat that people will die from a deadly pandemic if, if they're forced to vote in person. I actually thought of a their, their argument is frivolous, but I actually thought of, of a hypothetical that would mm -hmm. kind of expose how absurd it is. Suppose for a moment that on November 3 of this year, Brad Friedman is the chief of police of Los Angeles. Which is, which is likely to happen, but go ahead, yeah. Yeah, he rece you receive a, uh, a credible threat that a bomb has been planted at a local voting center. Mm-hmm. And you turn around and quite naturally order your officers to shut down the voting center, mm -hmm. uh, go in, find the bond, defuse it, and as a result, nobody can vote at the time scheduled by the legislature at that particular voting center. Mm -hmm. Now, would anybody seriously argue that by issuing an order to prevent people from being blown up while they're trying to vote, mm -hmm. that, that the chief of police is violating the Constitution? Obviously not. It's absurd. And in this instance, it's the same thing that's mm -hmm. basically going on. What they've done is they, they've basically erected a straw man. They say, well, California passed a statute that say, it says that uh, counties, if they want to be vote-by-mail only, that they have to uh, meet certain qualifications. Mm -hmm. Well, this executive order doesn't say anything about... Uh, vote by mail only. It doesn't change anything about mail-in ballots except one thing. Under the existing California law, which specifically, by the way, says that, that mail-in ballots, the legislative statute says mail-in ballots must be made available to any voter. Mm -hmm. That's the exact language in the statute. But in order to the only thing difference between existing law and the order that Governor Newsom issued is that he has directed the county, uh, all of the election officials, to mm -hmm. send the mail-in ballots without a request. Right now, before before this order, mm -hmm. you had to specifically request a mail-in ballot in order to get one. But if you if you do get the mail-in ballot, everybody gets one. That doesn't mean you have to vote by mail. Right. They still have the option of of voting in person or not voting at all. Because so, they're not closing uh, the, the, the voting centers under this. They're just sending a, 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 a ballot to all registered voters, and if you don't want to use it, you can still go in and uh, risk, I guess, uh, being infected with the coronavirus and vote in person. So it's it seems, uh, Ernie, that this lawsuit fails. You, you cite at least two different places where it fails. Uh, one... The legislature has approved, essentially, this, uh, in approving the emergency law, which allows the governor to suspend any uh, statute, they have essentially, that is the legislature approving what Governor Gavin Newsom did, right? Just that alone. Yeah, in essence, in, in essence, it's a delegation of emergency legislative authority to the governor. Mm -hmm. That's what that statute is. And he exercised that emergency legislative authority uh, and and quite frankly, it would be the same thing with the police chief situation. Mm -hmm. If it's an emergency, you have a bomb that's in the place. The police chief has every right to shut it down. And yeah, that affects the time, place, and manner. But 
but it's an emergency. Right. You know, that's what the whole point of emergency statutes are. And going back then to the other then the other point where this suit seems to fail, at least according to your analysis, uh, counselor. The um, you say that it ha- it is established that okay so the, the 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 Constitution says the time place and manner of holding elections uh, is prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but you're arguing that case law, including Supreme Court case law, has determined that actually the governor counts as the legislature under that uh, that part of the U.S. Constitution. Any. Entity or official, which includes obviously the governor, would include the police chief, uh, can be authorized in in that instance by the legislature. It's it's a delegation of authority. And in this instance, mm-hmm. the the passage of the emergency statute, the statute that allows the governor to to basically change any any state mm-hmm. uh, practice that puts lives at risk, that statute is a delegation of of. Uh, legislative authority to the governor. Mm-hmm. So the, that aspect of it fails completely. The other problem that they have with this is that they're, <laughs> they're you know, they're, it's a straw man argument. They're, they're saying, well, you vote by mail. Well, it's, they're not making them vote by mail only. Mm-hmm. They're, they're making them in a, in a vote by mail county that's already qualified, then you would be getting vote by mail only anyways. Mm-hmm. But a lot of counties are, with, that haven't qualified you'll still be able to vote in person if you really want to go that route and run the risk. So, uh, so as I was editing uh, your story last night, Ernie, I asked you whether you, th- you thought that, you know, just because all known precedents in federal court suggest that a governor is regarded here as the legislature under, you know, years of federal court rulings on this. Uh, isn't this something that this U.S. Supreme Court, this stolen Republican stolen majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, isn't this something that they would love the opportunity to take to overturn that, uh, you know, those precedents right around now? I mean, after all, they claim to be originalist textualists who must interpret the Constitution as it was written. And in fact, it does say, you know, in the Constitution, you know, uh, time, manner, and place prescribed by the legislature of each state. Wouldn't this be a great time for those originalists to uh, overturn all of those uh, years of precedence? Do you have any reason to well, believe that they would not do that if this case reaches that? I, 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 I doubt that it would, but the, there's another problem. They'd have to tr- overturn another their precedence by the time this case got to them because they have a case that, that basically holds that you can't change election procedures too close to an election. And by the time this case wound its way all the way through the Ninth Circuit and then up to the Supreme Court, um, they will be real close <laughs> to the November election. And, that, and that, that they would have to overturn that decision, too. And if you recall, it was a few years ago uh, in Wisconsin, they had the, the photo ID mm-hmm. Statute, and, yeah. and I forget one other state, and in one because they had a court order that had uh, prevented the statute from going into effect prior to a specific election, they uh, did not overturn that case, and yet the Texas case, they made the reverse ruling and and, uh, uh, and allowed the photo ID to go forward uh, for that particular election. So. Mm-hmm. In this instance, if you get too close, it's called the Purcell principle. Right. If if you get too close to to an election, then that's that. This particular court came up with Purcell, and they're the ones that are saying you can't do it that close. So yeah. you've got that problem too. But but frankly, I don't I, I don't think this is a case where John Roberts would uh, 
hang his hat on it. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think so. Maybe some of the other guys, uh, particularly yeah. uh, uh, Thomas or, you know, one of them would, right. might might go along with this nutty stuff, but this isn't even close. All right. So your prediction is this court, uh, this uh, case is going to get uh, summarily tossed out? Uh, I don't think it's even going to get there. I think it's going to be uh, dismissed at the at the district court level, and I don't think they'll get anywhere going to the uh, – uh, to the Ninth Circuit, uh, and uh, it, it's just not going to happen. Okay. But you know, I mean, with this with this court, you know, uh, stranger things. <laughs> yeah, I know that's what that's what I was worried about. That's what I continue to be worried about. But I'm going to go. There's one other. Yeah. Okay. The one other point in this is that the Republicans keep claiming that uh, mail-in ballots, uh, you know, open the door to voter fraud and all this. Mm-hmm. And as usual, there, there's no evidence for it. Uh, I cited a, a recent UCLA voting rights project study that it's extremely rare, and the California election officials haven't seen any cases of it here in California. So if you, if you weigh the thing about the potential for somebody to carry out some voter fraud scheme and weigh that against how many voters would be disenfranchised if uh, they're forced to choose between voting and risking contracting a deadly disease, I, I think that the scales weigh heavily in favor of mail-in ballots. Not that any of those Republicans care about that at all. I suspect they uh, yeah. would not shed a tear if uh, a lot of folks in California died. Ernie Canning, you can find his uh, full article on this. Republicans filed dubious legal challenge to California's emergency vote-by-mail order. You can find that, of course, at bradblog.com, where he has been a longtime legal analyst and contributor. Ernie, always great uh, speaking with you. Oh, and folks can find you if they wish to disagree with everything you have to say uh, on the Twitters at Can4ing, C-A-N-N, the number 4 ING. One of these days I'm going to have to ask you how the hell you came up with that Twitter handle, but I don't have time for it now. Thank you, Ernie. Great talking to my friend. Good talking to you, Brad. Okay, we got to get out. My thanks, <laughs> yes. of course, to Ernie and to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. That service is made possible by those of you kind enough who, uh, to stop by bradblog.com slash donate and help us stay on your public airwaves at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. If you uh, you can drop me email, I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and you will find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.